And it is so good to see you again. If you're new with us at Eastridge and you're going, why is that a big deal? Who are you, buddy? Um, I'm Pastor Dwayne. I've been gone for three weeks, and I'm the lead pastor here when I'm present. And uh, it's uh, really good to be back. uh, uh, Sharon and I, my wife Sharon and I, and Chris Green went on a mission to uh, Kenya to uh, teach uh, pastors and to do some medical work and to help in a school and an orphanage. And it was really uh, an amazing and wonderful time. But I wanted you to know you have a connection to it. Uh, so we did this mission for nine days, and then uh, Chris Green and I went on a safari, which is another story that I can't tell you about today. But it was cool to see Chris in a pith helmet and a cargo jacket and pants and the khaki, kind of, you know, the short things. It was pretty cool. Uh, just kidding. You know, he didn't actually do that. He dressed like his lovable self. So but we, uh, we had an amazing time in ministry there, and I wanted you to be able to see uh, kind of what had happened with us and how you contributed to it, uh, because not only did you, you, help, you know, allow us to go over there, but uh, we did this offering at the end of the year, Overflow, and uh, about $2,500 of that, I think, 20, maybe uh, 2000 somewhere in there, 2100 maybe, uh, was given toward uh, uh, this Kenya trip, and here's, here's what happened. Um, First of all, you saw Chris Green up there in the first slide. <clears throat> he, uh, he and I taught pastors, and they're, here they're getting their certificates, because remember, they have to have these certificates to prove that they've had education or they can't have a license to be a pastor. They have no livelihood. By the way, their livelihood is about $40 a month, and that's pretty decent. Uh, if you're really wealthy, you make $150 a month because you teach at a government school. So that's, that's the world that they live in. Uh, but they were very thankful. You can see the, the joy in their faces, and they gave joy to us. Uh, then Sharon was teaching in, uh, in the classrooms, um, and uh, she and another nurse, uh, Julie Gunderson from Minnesota, uh, they were teaching in the classroom, mostly teaching hygiene and different things uh, to the kids at the school that we were kind of based at. Uh, and Chris actually taught some, some uh, classes, too, among these, these little kids. In fact, he, they had a nickname for him. They called him Muscles. I think he told him to call him that. I'm not sure, but I, actually, I better be careful because he gets a shot up here after a while. Um, and uh, there I am. Nobody accused me of being muscles, uh, but I'm teaching the pastors <laughs> there. And uh, then w- because of your contributions, we were able to bring some things for these kids, like these backpacks. They were able to, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know kind of decorate their backpacks, and they had some stuff to put in them I'll tell you about in a minute. And, and uh, they were very proud of these backpacks, man. They were walking around the whole school with their backpack, and, you know, this is my backpack, and it was pretty cool. And, and then Sharon and... Um, Julie did some medical missions that both in the school to the pastors and to the kids, but then they went out to the sort of outer reaches, and uh, here they are working with a, a mom and a child, and here they are giving some deworming uh, uh, medicine because that's a big problem there along with malaria and, and HIV is rampant. And here's a couple of orphans from the school who are uh, eating their lunch, and you see the, the rice and the lentils, uh, the beans kind of thing there. That's kind of standard lunch for them. We ate a lot of that. Here's some kids just telling you what they think of you uh, for, for having us come there. They're pretty excited. Uh, and then here's Sharon teaching uh, a bunch of women. She taught a, a women's seminar. They did hygiene there too, as well as, well as spiritual teaching and leading uh, on the weekend. Uh, we saw a lot of kids playing things like soccer. Uh, and, and actually, Chris played soccer too. I tried to get it on video, but I was, I was kind of late to the game. He, He's a pretty good soccer player. And, and uh, you know, all the kids were in, in the backyard playing soccer there. And then back, back to the women's conference, I got these out of order. Uh, this, is, this was the women's conference. Go ahead and 
where our slides are moving around here. Um, it's a women's conference that was, uh, the, the last slide you had up there was the women's conference, the, all the women together, so after the soccer. Yeah, there you go. That's it, that's it. And then, uh, and then finally, another thing that you provided was some, some games and things, because you know when you're in the school, and particularly at nighttime, uh, it's not that much fun, particularly for the orphans that stay in the school and the kids that, not the kids that go home. Uh, so we got these jump ropes. But then uh, two weeks ago, I went to a church that was way up to the north, out toward the Ugandan border, didn't know what I was going to find, but this is what I, I wanted you to see and hear what I saw when I got out of the car. Here it is, right here. Go check this out. That's a church in a place called Kolongolo. And in Kolongolo, you can see they've got walls, but they don't have any roof because they've got 7,000 bricks that have been made, but they need to be fired. And here's the thing. Because of your contributions, we were able to help them get a roof this week on their church, which means they're going to be able to invite more friends. The rainy, yeah. <clears throat> the rainy season starts. Timothy, if you remember Timothy, they call him Bishop Timothy there, was the one that drove us up. He was the one that translated for me uh, at this time because we always, always do this stuff through translation. And he made the announcement at the end of the service that he was going to put a roof on the building and that Eastridge had, had, had contributed some money to help get the metal for the roof because they had the bricks, they had the wood, they needed the metal. And so that happened this week uh, is, is what the, the word I got that was going to happen. So way to go. So let me just summarize what you've done directly for these people and give you one message from them, okay? The first one is, is that you, you provided mosquito nets. We bought mosquito nets, because the kids don't have mosquito nets. Big deal when you got malaria running around um, and flying around in those mosquitoes. They got shoes, the Petersons, you know, uh, won those shoes in a, in a uh, Mission Fest lottery or whatever that was. And shoes that grow with the kids' feet. We got some pictures of that, just didn't have time to show you. Keith uh, Peters uh, gave some uh, toothbrushes and paste from some of his distributors. Uh, he's a dentist, and boy, did the kids love that. Julie Gunderson brought some more, and so we were able to give them to the pastors. They love that because, you know, you can't really preach very well if you're worried about your teeth falling out. So that, that all happened. Medical supplies, basic medicines for them to go out and do these clinics. They were able to give people some real help in that regard because of your contributions. Uh, jump ropes, backpacks, treats for school and the kids in the orphanage. And then one thing that I'm pretty excited about to see how this turns out. We were able to give a large chunk of money from the overflow money back to the mission. It went home with Gary Stenberg, who's the president of this mission we work with, back uh, to Minnesota. And the reason it was given to him is because with that amount of money, we've got about two years of paying a, a monthly wage for a matron to oversee the school, to help them with hygiene, to make sure things get clean, to make sure they use their mosquito nets, stuff like that, to do the mothering thing that these kids don't have, especially the orphans. And it's because you contributed that, we have enough to get that kick-started for this. And we, there's actually a couple people in mind that they're, they're kind of vetting right now as to who this should be. And that's a big deal. That really directly affects the lives of these kids. And so way to go, Eastridge. And then finally, of course, we were able to put a roof on a church, and now they can invite their friends and not be worried about getting wet or soaked or blistered by the sun when they come to church. Because they said that was one of their biggest problems in terms of their growth of their church. But here's the thing I want to tell you. Two weeks ago, or you know, a week ago Wednesday, in my last session uh, with the pastors, uh, afterwards, one of the wise older pastors kind of raised his hand and said, excuse me. <laughs> I said, I, I was walking off. He said, first of all, we want to pray for you. So they prayed for me, which was a moving experience. I'll tell you about that another time. But 
they said, we want you to tell your church, thank you for praying for us, because we know that you do. And secondly, we came here to tell you that we pray for you. We pray for Eastridge Church. They have our website, so they're going to go on, some of them are going to go on and, and uh, continue their education by, reading, or by watching the live feed. And, and they said, we pray for you, and we want you to tell your church that we're praying for you, because we're all the same body of Christ. They're like that. I mean, because the reality is, is we're all just believers in Jesus trying to live Jesus' way in the culture that we are in, right? That's all the same. And that, that's what they recognize, and that's what the message they wanted me to pass on to you, and so now I have. And it's also something that really is important to start off with as we start this series that we're calling Love Thy Body about the, crucial, the critical and controversial subjects of our time that seem to be just kind of turning everything upside down. Um, where we borrowed this, this phrase, Love Thy Body, from uh, what I think is probably one of the most significant books uh, to, to come out, certainly one of the most significant apologetics books to come out in the last five years by Nancy Piercy. And we're, we're going to borrow some of her information and so forth, but what we were trying to do is do what she asked toward the end, is that we begin to live this stuff out, that we don't just have head knowledge, but that we, we unpack it, okay? And that's really the goal of this, but the, the reason I wanted to, to highlight that that's what it is, is number one, I didn't want anybody to think that I was plagiarizing. Number two, uh, I want you to know where that information comes from in case you want to get it. Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. Uh, it, it was put out in 2018. But the, the reality is, is because we're dealing with these controversial issues, I need to say something up front at the beginning of this series that I haven't said in a long, long, long time for, for those of you who are parents. Uh, and it is this. We will probably have a series here that somewhere along the way becomes PG-13. I just want to let you know that. We're not going to get into the gory details, uh, but, uh, you know, we will have to have some adult conversations about some things over the course of this time. So I just want to let you know about that because we're, we're dealing with subjects like personhood. What does it mean to be a human being? Because you know what? What it used to mean to be a human being, what most people thought of, that's been reduced. That's been pulled down quite a bit in our culture today. Uh, we're going to talk about, you know, life and the sanctity of life. Does God have anything to say about that in the, in the Bible? And the answer is yes, it does. And here's the thing. We hear so much about what the Bible says out there and reported in the media or whatever. Half of it's not true. So what does it actually say? And, and then, uh, you know, we're going to look at human sexuality. Because that's obviously one of the hottest, most uh, uh, raging subjects of our time. Because here's the reality, that even uh, in, in our city of Portland, Oregon, especially in the suburbs where we live behind our garage doors and behind our fences and our model homes, uh, even in places like happy, 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 the most encouraging valley in the world, okay, even there, people are struggling. They're struggling when they hear the news coming out of D.C., they're struggling when they see the rise of anxiety and outrage just on their TV screens all the time. They're struggling when they hear attitudes and people pontificating as if they were big brother in the public square. And I'm not just talking about Christians. I'm talking about everybody. That, that's tough to take. So we're, we're living in that world. Uh, now, what does it mean to live in that world? Because the fact of the matter is things have changed. Things have changed on the banks of the post-Christian frontier known as Portland, Oregon in the last 10 years. It started a long time before that. We'll see in a minute. But, it, but it's changed, hasn't it? 
And, and uh, let me just put a footnote in here because I just got back from Kenya, just got back from Africa. Um, I have to say that all these changes that our society is going through and how great and enlightened we are, <laughs> uh, the rest of the world isn't really taking it very well. It's sort of a, you know, kind of, it's sort of a, a form of Western supremacy. Oh, we've got it. You guys don't have it. We're the first person on the planet to ever get it. You need to do it. Because I had a pastor come up to me, and I knew he was kind of fumbling because he didn't really want to question the great American. <laughs> and I said, just tell me. He says, he said, well, we're hearing things that are happening in America, and I just have to ask, I can't remember exactly how I asked, but it was something like, what are you guys doing in America, right? I mean, it's like the rest of the world doesn't really compute. Like, how, how can we really think we're smarter than they are? And they don't want all of that stuff coming at them. Some of these controversial things that we're, 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 we're experiencing here. But, but the reality is, is that you had to ask, how has it changed? And, and right up front in this series, I will come clean, uh, which is probably obvious, but let's just say it. I'm coming at this from a Christian biblical worldview. And the Christian biblical worldview is, is that what has changed is we have cut ourselves off from the moral foundations of what, um, the moral foundations of what, of what we, we have always lived by. That's what's changed. We're trying to unmoor ourselves or untether ourselves from that. And as a result, we got nowhere to stand and everybody's kind of fumbling around about where to put their feet. That's the reality. You see, that's a question that's been asked for centuries and centuries and centuries. It's not anything new, but um, it's been asked for a long, long time, including in the Bible, 2,900 years ago, a man by the name of King David in Psalm 11, verse 3, said, uh, asked the question in probably the best way that I've ever heard it asked. And you can, you can write that down and look this up, Psalm 11:3. 3. He says, when the foundations begin to crumble, what should the righteous do? When the footing starts to go away, what is it that the people of God, in other words, the people who say they follow God, what is it that they should do? Now, this is a process that didn't just happen five years ago or three years ago or even a decade ago. It's been going on for a long time. It's just that now we're starting to see the results of it, okay? Uh, let me give you one example. Way back in 1951, there was a, a Jewish philosopher um, an American Jewish philosopher, not a Christian, a, a Jewish man. He, he, he was a Jewish believer. I don't know at what level. But his name was Will Herbert. And here's what he said uh, in 1951 about this process of un, un, unhooking ourselves from our moral underpinnings. The attempt made in recent decades by secular thinkers to disengage moral principles of Western civilization from their scripturally based religious context, his scripture, of course, was the Old Testament, in the assurance that they could live a life of their own as, quote, humanistic, unquote, ethics, has resulted in our cut flower culture. Cut flowers retain their original beauty and fragrance, but only so long as they retain the vitality that they have drawn from their now severed roots. After that is exhausted, they wither and die. So it is with freedom, brotherhood, justice, personal integrity, the values that form the moral foundation of our civilization. Without the life-giving power of the faith out of which they have sprung, the roots in other words, they possess neither meaning nor vitality. That's sort of a clear description, isn't it, of what we're experiencing now, the sort of the, the wilting, if you will. Uh, about three years ago, uh, 
a guy named Oz Guinness, who is a uh, descendant of the Irish Guinness clan, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, but today is one of the greatest social critics. He's a Christian and one of the greatest Christian apologists, I think, and theologians of our time. His name's Oz Guinness. Uh, he uh, wrote a book called Impossible People. How about how it's always been impossible to keep God's people down? They're just, just seem to be impossible to, to, to stop them. Okay, that's, that, that's kind of the theme of the book. And he, he, tells, he picks up this cut flower civilization idea from Herberg, and he describes that that's actually what's going on. And then he tells a story about going to teach in China. And he, he ran across a, a Chinese uh, college professor. I think he was actually a president of a university. And this Chinese professor said, you know, we intellectuals in China have studied you in America for years. I mean, we don't want your religion and your faith and your God and all that. But we've studied you, studied you, studied you, trying to figure out what your strength is, what your power is, and wh why, why you're so successful at things. And we came to the conclusion that it's your moral uh, uh, beliefs, your moral values that are the foundation of the strength that America has. But now we look at you, and it looks like you're cu cutting yourself off from that moral foundation. What's the deal? And, and, and Guinness <laughs> said he had a difficult time explaining to him <clears throat> why people would want to do that. And, and we see it every week and, and, and all the time as we listen to things. We saw it this week in just in these little ways where we see the sort of the wilting of the, the, the flower a little bit. Uh, one, one of the things that, uh, that I, I ran across early in the week, and I don't know where it's at now because I haven't been paying attention uh, to uh, news out of Washington, D.C. this week. Um, but one of the words I heard was that uh, the, the new house, you know, every time a new uh, party comes into power in one of the parts of Congress, they get to write the rules of how they'll operate. And uh, the new house has been uh, looking at the uh, oath that they're going to ask people to take when they speak before congressional committees. And what they're looking at is they're looking at taking out the words, uh, so help me God. And the reason they want to take out the words, so help me God, is because not everybody believes in God, obviously, so they will feel bad if they have to say, so help me God. All right. So uh, when I heard that, I thought, well, that's not really news, is it? Because nine times out of ten, the people who go before congressional committees probably don't believe in God anyway. And that's not something that started this week. That's not something that's starting with the new Congress. That started a long time ago, that sort of undercutting under, us, the secularization of the world, the progressive undercutting and, and, and taking us off from that. But I, I tell you all these things and talk about all these things not to give us a sense of, oh, dread, but, but rather to say, you know what? If Christian hope is really hope, as it says in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, you know, that it's, it's not just, oh, I wish, I wish, I hope, I hope. But it's actual confidence and a, a down-to-earth expectation that God is up to something. Then this is the time to be alive to see that. That's the reality of this. That's the, that's the, the hope of where we're trying to go in this series of Love Thy Body. We're not trying to take anybody out. We're not trying to put anybody down. We're not trying to, you know, bring preeminence for us. Because you know what? Christians have always, for the last 2,000 years, operated better and been healthier as the underdog. So I'm not sure that this is all a bad thing. But if we are going to live in this culture, 
If we're going to uh, experience this the way uh, God means for experience, we need to know what he says about who we are, right? What does it mean to be a Christian in a tumultuous culture? What does it mean to be a dreaded evangelical? If they are dreaded, I mean, aren't they dreaded? Are we dreaded? What does it mean to be all that stuff? I mean, and the answer is, is Jesus clearly teaches us his way, doesn't he? And one of, I think one of the key teachings that he does is a teaching that we've been through before in the last eight months already, but I'm going to come back to it again. It's the parable uh, or the teaching story uh, of the Good Samaritan. Because I think before we look at, you know, what everybody else is thinking and how the world's going, we need to look at ourselves and say, what do we really believe, again, and how can we live in this culture exactly the way Jesus lived when he came to this earth in John 1, 14, John 1, 18, full of grace and truth? What does it mean to live full of grace and truth? And you've got to start with his story, uh, in, 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 I think, in um, Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25, if you're going to look that up, uh, about the, the Good Samaritan. Even though we went through it last August when we started to talk about uh, the uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor series, remember that? It was the blessed series where we talked about how to be a gospel-sharing person and living just by the way you live your life, the B-L-E-S-S, just look that up. Uh, you'll, you'll see that's a part of the sort of the DNA around here now, and we're hoping to make it more so. But, but here's, here's Jesus <clears throat> teaching us in a context of, of a, you know, a real cultural, a real... Uh, significant challenge to his faith and his teaching, he teaches us as he deals with this person what it means to have grace in the face of not compromising the truth. So here, let's, let's just take a look and I'll show you what I mean. Beginning at verse 25 of the parable of Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what is written in the law, he, that is Jesus, replied, how do you read it? This guy was supposed to be versed in the law. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he, the, the legal scholar, he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, I want to go through large sections of this because I want you to hear what actually happened and how Luke reports it. I want you to hear what Jesus said and how he said it rather than what I say. So I'm just going to go through the whole things. But let's pause there for a second because this is the context that Jesus is operating in. And what Jesus uh, is saying here, I think, and, and, and what he wants to tell us this morning is that we all live in the culture, we share in this culture with our secular neighbors. We're all swimming in it. We're all breathing the same air. I'm not saying that we all we, we believe the same or that we've, you know, kind of compromised over or we should or anything. I'm saying they have to deal with it. We have to deal with it. Everybody has to deal with it. We're all in this together, if you will. And Jesus seems to address this guy at that level, right? How do you read it? What do you see? How do you experience it? Let me, let me describe who this guy is, and it'll show you the starkness of what Jesus is doing here. This guy is called a scribe. But between the 400 years, the silent years between Malachi the prophet and the book of Matthew and the, the appearance of the, uh, John the Baptist, 
There was uh, the rise up of a group called the Pharisees. You've heard about them before. The Pharisees were a uh, theological group for the Jewish people, but they were sort of a replacement for some of the Levites because the Levite tribe, you know, remember the 12 tribes of Israel? The Levites were the priestly tribe. But when they got, you know, uh, captured and taken away and brought back and taken away and people intermarried and so forth, it got confusing about who was actually a part of what tribe. So they, they formed this group of Pharisees who were sort of religious teachers, but they became more political. And they needed somebody who would actually go back to the text of the Old Testament law, Ten Commandments and all the law in there, and interpret the law and help people know what the law actually said. And that's what this guy was. He was a scribe, or he was in those days what would be called a lawyer, an attorney. Okay? I guess not, maybe not an attorney. Let's leave that aside because there might be attorneys here. This guy was a lawyer. All right, he, the Old Testament law. So he knew it backwards and forwards. And it says that he came to test Jesus. And this word to test really means, it has the, 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 the impact and the, the definition with it, to test with the purpose of destroying somebody. Not just destroying Jesus physically, but destroying his whole argument destroying the whole teaching, getting this guy off the, uh, uh, off the scene, okay? And, and so this, this guy was not Jesus' buddy. He wasn't just having a nice intellectual argument. He was trying to get Jesus to stumble, to cause confusion. If we think we've got people trying to confuse things today, these guys were coming at Jesus all the time. And so you look at that and you realize, you know, well, the way Jesus treats this guy ought to be instructive to us about how we can treat people in our world that maybe don't see things as the same as us or the people who are living in, 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 with more sex, sex, uh, secular ideals and so forth. And um, this, so Jesus asked him, he said, okay, well, you're a lawyer. What do you see as, as um, you know, the, the, uh, the answer to your question, you know, how is it written to you? You know, how do you see inter in, in inheriting eternal life? And he gives the answer, the Jewish guy does, the lawyer, uh, what every good Jewish lawyer would give. Deuteronomy uh, 6, 5 and 6. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what they had taped to their foreheads. I don't know if the phylacteries were going on then. I think they were. But you can even see them today by ultra-Orthodox Jews. They got these little boxes on their heads. You know what's in there? It's a little scroll with this verse on it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Maybe the guy pointed at his forehead and said, well, you know what it is. But it's also another verse in there that all Jews recognized were just as important, which this guy brings out. And love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, and um, that's what Jesus preached. That's what Jesus put together, remember, in places like Matthew 22? And the reason he did is, is he was agreeing with what was, what was being said by the religious guys in those days at that point. Because here's what Jesus says. He says, he says go and, and live, this, live that way and do that. But really, if you translate it directly, it says, go do. In other words, take a step in that direction, and then you'll be able to live it. In other words, the first commandment, love the Lord your God, powers the second commandment to be able to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, if you love the Lord God, and we know this from New Testament times, he will send his Holy Spirit to make it possible for you to live and navigate in whatever cultural moment you live in with grace and truth. 
And that's what Jesus preached, and he practiced what he preached, even in the way he, he, he dealt with this guy who was really his enemy. So here's our leader who says, love your enemies, who are trying to trip you up, and he does exactly that in this, this deal. But, but that's not good enough for the lawyer because he's, he's kind of realizing he's missing, he's, he's losing the upper hand. So he brings up a question that people were talking about all the time in Jesus' day. At least the Jewish people were talking about this all the time, all the time, all the time. And the question is, okay, love your neighbors yourself, but who's my neighbor? I mean, they were sure that the neighbors were only Jewish people, but only certain Jewish people. So what this guy is asking, really, is, is there anybody like, you know, that is sort of like my neighbor, uh, but, you know, we're politically different, morally different, theologically different, and I can just go up and smack them? And that's basically what he's trying to get Jesus to say. He's trying to get Jesus to, to answer that question and trying to get him to get fouled up so that he can bring him up on charges in front of, um, in front of the Sanhedrin. But Jesus does this stunning thing, the most gracious thing you could possibly do. He tells a story with a theological truth in it that sort of just floats down, and it just blows up in the guy's face <laughs> in a good way. And Jesus doesn't, doesn't, you know, doesn't look at him and say, you know what, you're the person that's, the pro- that's causing all the problems in this world. Even though this guy would just as well Jesus leave the planet altogether. Jesus shows us in this story what it means, this teaching story that has doctrine teaching in it, shows us what it means to navigate and live, I think, probably more practically in our culture than anything at any other time and in any other place in Scripture. So as we begin this series on Love Thy Body where we're dealing with these issues, this is really important to help define who we are. Look at what he says beginning in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said to the man, or Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Okay, I, got, I, got, I have to stop here, just in case you haven't heard me say this before, because everybody standing around Jesus knew exactly what Jesus was talking about, but you won't unless you've heard this before. Uh, and the road from Jerusalem to Jericho descends like 3,000 feet. You can still see it today. It goes through valleys and up over hills, and there's caves. There's all kinds of places for criminals to hide. And this was the most criminal-fested place in all of Judea, in all of uh, the land of Israel-Palestine at the time. And Jews would avoid this road if they could, but it was the best route to Jericho. It was really the only route to Jericho without going all the way up to Galilee and all the way back, which was just not possible in those days. And so these people are going, oh, no, the dreaded road from Jerusalem to Jericho. They kind of saw what was coming. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he attacked, was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. And so, too, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw the man, saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, cue the dread music, a Samaritan as he traveled came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. This guy's a Jew. He's a Samaritan. Keep that in mind. Verse 34, he went on... To, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him 
to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for an extra expense that you may have. You see, Jesus, when he, he, he places this in the perfect place, in the perfect cultural moment, the road between Jerusalem to Jericho, everybody knew that Jews tried to avoid that road. Even today, you can see this. If, if, if uh, Jewish people, is, if Israelis, Jewish Israelis, can uh, possibly avoid going through the West Bank up the Jordan River Valley, they'll go all the way out to the Mediterranean and over to Galilee if they've got to get to the north, even to this day. But before we get to, uh, you know, sort of feeling good about ourselves, let's just think about that. How often do we hang out with people that are like us and not people who aren't like us? I mean, even in hipster, secular, progressive Portland, there's still this drive to hang up with other, hang out with other hipsters, secular progressives. There's the same way here in the suburbs. And I'm not just talking about racially, although that's sad, hanging out with people that are the same race as us. That, that's sad. I'm talking about socioeconomic. I'm talking about belief systems. I'm talking about, um, uh, you know, uh, not, not just theologically, but uh, sociologically, all those kinds of things. We tend to hang out with people like us. And here's the problem for Christians in that, the tragedy of that. If we think heaven's going to be like that, we're going to be very disappointed. Because when you get to heaven, it's not going to be a bunch of clones of you and not a bunch of clones of me. Thank God for that. It's going to be all of God's people, the Africans and the Americans and the Asians and everybody all together from all different walks of life. And you will be surprised to find some hipsters there too. Right? So what Jesus is he's using this specifically to kind of blow up this guy's idea of who's okay and who's not okay. And then they didn't see this coming, but they should have saw it coming when Jesus was, you know, putting the context together the way he was. This, verse 33, the Samaritan is the one that helps. The Samaritan who, uh, you know, the dreaded, hated Samaritans. You didn't hang out with Samaritans. Samaritans were bad people. All of them had to be bad people. They were, they were half Jewish, which was partly true because with all the exile and the moving back and forth, you know, there was mixed blood in, in the Samaritans. The Samaritans even had their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They had their own scripture. They had their own version of the Samaritan Pentateuch. So they couldn't, they couldn't be God followers. They just couldn't be good people. This just couldn't be possible. You know, and, and we look at that and we go, well, wait a you know, maybe we're, we're more and more, we're getting our scripture that sort of divide us too, right? In our culture, I'm talking culturally now. You know, it, it, you know our script, my scripture, I've heard this recently. My scripture is science. You know, your scripture is the Bible. Is that really a dichotomy? I think that's a false dichotomy. Or, or the liberal scripture and the conservative scripture. And what I'm talking about is the political extreme on the left and the political extreme on the right. And have you noticed, you can't really take any pieces out of that. If you're going to be a part of our group, you've got to join all of that. You can't join any of this, right? You can't, you can't pull any of the ideas across. Or how about this one? The most bombastic over the meek. Whoever's the most bombastic and the loudest, you know, they win the day, they get on TV, and yet Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth. 
That's the kind of dichotomy and the kind of split Jesus is saying is a bunch of hooey. And that's the kind of thing that says that's, there's reality to liberal and conservative. There's a reality to those kind of disagreements between, you know, scientists and, and biblical scientists and all that kind of stuff. That's all true. But that's a secondary thing compared to who we're really following and who God has made people to be. You see, with these Samaritans, when, they, when he said Samaritan, you weren't even allowed to eat with the Samaritan because they were unclean. It was like eating pork for the Jewish people. They were considered some of the most divisive and schismatic and despicable people on the planet. I mean, you could go to a Jewish person and say, well, do you know any Samaritans? And they would have gone, no, I wouldn't know a Samaritan. Well, how do you know they're like that? Because I just know. And there's that going, that, that's, that's kind of what's starting to go on today, right? Let me, let me just give you sort of a list of things people would have said about Samaritans that kind of bring it into the vernacular, bring it into our world and into our context. Here it is. They were considered to be religiously confused. They were considered to be self-righteous, like they knew better. They were considered to be bigoted toward Jews. They were considered to be dangerous to society. They were considered to be, that, you know, they should be made to change their belief system. What's stunning to me is I'm looking at this parable and listening and trying to get into the context of what was going on when Jesus was saying that and all 12 of the disciples around him, right? And Jesus is doing this teaching. Just a year or two later, after Jesus dies on the cross, rises from the dead and ascends into heaven in very, very short order, all of these things were considered to be true about them by everybody else in the empire, including the Jewish people. Isn't that interesting? They were the despised ones. Very shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven. What does that mean? I think what it means is more and more in our society, I'm starting to see that I need to read this parable from the angle of the Samaritan. Because here's why. We are becoming the Samaritans. We are the Samaritans. Sort of like, we are the champions. Now that one. <laughs> it's, it's, we are the Samaritans. But, and, 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 and that's not all bad. We're going to see that in the series. That's not all bad. And because Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of this story. You see, Jesus' point is that if you are going to be a Samaritan anyway in the cultural age that you happen to find yourself in, be a good one. I mean, surely it's true that the common sense of the Jewish people wasn't all wrong. There were Samaritans who were bad. But Jesus is saying, no, you be a good one. You be a good Samaritan. And, and you show grace and truth to people the way I have taught you to show grace and truth to people. You be, you, you be a good Samaritan. It's possible to be a good evangelical, I mean, a, a good Christ, I mean, a, a good Samaritan. It's possible for that. That's what Jesus is saying to this guy and everybody is teaching, and I think he's, he wants to say it to us as we live in this age, not on our own, not by ourselves. It is by loving God and then loving the neighbor. The first one powers the second and makes it possible for that to happen. And so what, what Jesus does with this guy then 
is he sort of wraps it up and makes a point not only to him, but to all of us down through the ages. And I think this becomes even more practical in our cultural moment than it has ever been practical and, and, uh, and desirous for us as Jesus followers than any other time in history. Here's what he says, beginning at verse 36. Which of these do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. What was that? I didn't hear you. The, the one who had mercy on him. Man, your mouth is full of marbles. Could you just say that a little louder? The one who had mercy on him. Ah, yes, that's right. That's exactly right. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You see, he's answering the question that the guy had in, in, in verse 29, who is my neighbor? But he, he's answering in a way the guy hoped he wouldn't, but it, there's nothing for him to say because Jesus has shown him grace. Jesus has shown his enemy, the one who is trying to really mess with his life and his teaching and his ministry, he has shown him grace. Not compromising the truth in any way, but he's shown him grace by inviting him in to his story. You see, you and I can't pick the culture that we're in. You and I can't keep the, the culture from um, affecting people we love. We can't, we can't even keep it from affecting our secular neighbors in a negative way, even though it would be great if we could, wouldn't it? We can't stop that, but here's what we can do, and it's better, and it's more powerful. We can ask God to make us a surprising and even shocking solution to our secular neighbors. We can ask God to do that for us. In the midst of what we're about to talk about, we can ask God to make us that Samaritan that shows the goodness, the goodness that becomes attractive to people around us. There's a scripture verse, Matthew 9, 36, and the whole area around verse 36 in Matthew chapter 9, that's become a part of the DNA of our church too. I mean, it talks about laborers, and laborers are few, and you've heard me talk about that, and, and Chris talk about that, and, and all sorts of things like that. But, um, but one, of these, one of those statements in there of by Matthew, who was there when Matthew 9 happened, says that Jesus looked at the crowds and he had compassion, meaning a deep, um, you know, physical love reaction, compassionate reaction. He had compassion on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And I began to ask myself, okay, Jesus is there with the crowds. Do you think there's any ideologues in that crowd? Do you think there's any people who believed anti-Christian, anti-Christ stuff in that crowd? Do you think there was anybody in that crowd who just as well would have had, you know, make Jesus stumble and get him a gotcha question or something? What this story tells us is, you bet there were. And yet he had compassion for them. And so I just want to kind of wrap this up with a quote and a story that maybe can help us rise our compassion quotient for the people that we work with, that we live with, that we encounter with in the, in the world that we live in now in this cultural moment. The first one is one of my uh, favorite authors. Uh, what's interesting is he wrote this almost 100 years ago, and yet again, just like Herberg, this is actually 
almost prophetic for our time. This is a, from a book called uh, The Everlasting Man, written in 1925 by G.K. Chesterton. Here's what he said. To anyone who will try to experiment of seeing history from the inside, in fact, instead of you know, living it from the inside, there comes an hour in the afternoon when the child is tired of pretending. He's using a metaphor now. When a child is tired of pretending, when he is wary of being a robber, it is then that he torments the cat. There comes a time in the routine of an ordered civilization, now he's back to applying it to our civilization, when a man is tired at playing at mythology and pretending that a tree is a maiden. The effect of this staleness is the same everywhere. It is seen in all the drug taking and dram drinking and every form of tendency to increase the dose. Men seek stranger sins and more startling obscenities as stimulants to their jaded sense. They seek after mad religions for the same reason. They try to stab their nerves to life as if it were the knives of the priests of Baal. They are walking in their sleep and try to wake themselves up with nightmares. I honestly don't know any better definition of what's going on in our world today than people walking in their sleep trying to wake themselves up with nightmares. Because here's what you and I know if we read the Bible at all and we believe it, is that trying to live without Christ is a downward, devolving spiral into horrific nightmares, ultimately. And if that doesn't give us some compassion and a sense of grace as we seek to live the truth and speak the truth, and man, I don't know what will. Let me sort of illustrate this with, as I said, one story of something that happened. And... Um, uh, it's not what I did in this story, but it's just an interesting conversation, something that happened that, you know, surprised me in a way that I haven't been surprised in a long time. It happened right over there by this tech table after service about a year and a half ago. And this person's not here, so you don't need to kind of look around and try to figure out who it is. Uh, but this person was new to church, new to our church. I'd heard that they were coming, and they'd been there like two weeks, and uh, not a Christian, wanted to learn about what Christianity was about, though, and... Uh, also uh, was a person who had uh, same-sex attraction. Don't know if they were living the LGBT lifestyle or not. Uh, I just, uh, I, I, I'd heard some things, but I, I'm, I don't have any confirmation of that. I just know that that was where they were coming from, and, and, and that world had begun to confuse them so much that they were starting to, wanting to check out the claims of Christ. And this person called me over and said, can I talk to you a minute? I said, yeah. Said, uh, she said, I, re I really like this church. I really like being here. I said, oh, that's great. You are welcome here. I'm so glad that you're here. And he said, well, no, you need to understand, I'm a sinner. And I said, wait, just let me check. Hey, so am I, you know. We've all got stuff. I don't care what it is, any, who it is, we've all got to be forgiven by Jesus. That's the whole point. And I go, oh, well, yes, that's good to know. And I said, I got to tell you, I, I know kind of where you're at. You're, you're not a Christian yet. No, I'm not a Christian yet. I said, but, but you, uh, you've come to the right place because I know this church and people will treat you kindly here. I know, I know that. I said, if anybody you know, kind of wanders in here from the outside and doesn't treat you kindly, let me know. But the reality is I know people treat you kindly as you're listening to the claims of Christ, as you're listening to Scripture. But here, here's something I got to tell you. 
uh, and I just want you to be upfront because I don't want you to think I'm picking on you. I have to say what the Bible says because if we unhinge ourselves from the Scripture, we got nothing. So I have to say what the Bible actually says about our sins and whatever else it is. And she interrupted me. She said, no, 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 you don't understand. I don't want you to change one verse of the Bible. I don't want you to change one letter of the Bible. She said, that's why I'm here. I need to know what it says. I, I couldn't talk for a couple of seconds. I said, okay. <laughs> but you see, the point that I'm making is, is that just possibly, just maybe, you know, trying to live in the fantasy land, the dangerous fantasy land of secular world that we are living in more and more today, maybe that eats up everybody. And just maybe, if we can just pe treat people with a little grace, we might find that they're hungry for the truth too. And that's what I hope we can kind of approach these subjects with in the next three weeks. And I'm going to call the band out here because that's really, I think, our mission. To live as Jesus came to earth, full of grace and truth. We'll never be like him fully and completely, but by the power of his spirit, we can go a long way. And this, it's the same spirit today as it was then. So Christians, that's your mission in this cultural moment, should you decide to accept it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we pray together, as we seek you in this moment, would you just show us what it is, what it means to live with grace and truth, not compromise, but with real grace and real truth the way you did because you were so phenomenal at it. Thank you for doing that for each one of us. Thank you for leading us to yourself that way for those of us who know you. Thank you for loving us into your presence, not shouting us into your presence or trying to. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that that's true. And may every person here and every person within the reach of our voices know that we love you. And as a result, we are determined to love our neighbors as ourselves just the way you've loved us. We will give you the thanks and we'll give you the honor and we'll point to you, Jesus, and your spirit when that happens for us. We love you. It's in your, that's why it's in your name we pray. Amen.